Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We just prayed and we are now in the gospel of Matthew chapter 15. We took a three week uh, break uh, from the Bible study and we are now back after the holidays. And so we're just going to quickly review where we are. We are about a year from the cross. Jesus has ministered in Israel. He has ministered in some Gentile areas as well, doing incredible miracles. He has shown incredible wisdom and fulfilled prophecy. Many believe in him, but there's great confusion as to who he is. We'll see that in chapter 16. What's occurred now is an official rejection of him by the Pharisees and the Sadducees to where he's going to be more in Gentile country now, training the apostles but still ministering as he goes along. In chapter 15, um, he meets an interesting lady. She is a Gentile. And so we're just going to read briefly the story. Um, We already kind of discussed it last time, but that was three weeks, four weeks ago, something like that. Um, Let's see, pick it up in chapter 15, uh, starting in verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. These are Gentile cities. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him. This is a Gentile, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. This is an odd passage. I just want to warn you, if you were here three weeks ago, four weeks ago, you know If you're hearing it for the first time or haven't studied it, it's a little unusual, Jesus' response to her. Jesus, verse 23, did not answer a word. That's already interesting. We haven't seen that before. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. There might be a hint of racism in that statement. They're Jewish. He's Jewish. He's the Jewish Messiah. She's a Gentile. Get rid of her. She's a pest, even though he has done some healing in Gentile areas. Uh, That's conjecture on my part, though, the racism thing. Verse 24, he's going to answer the woman. I was only sent, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Turns out later we'll find out he was sent first to the lost sheep of Israel. When they reject Jesus, for the most part, they go to the Gentiles. The same is true of the apostles. They go first to Israel, then to the Gentiles. The woman, verse 25, note the persistence. And by the way, there are great lessons we said three or four weeks ago, because this woman, Jesus tells her at the end of this story, woman, you have, in Greek, mega, or great, faith. Therefore, we're noticing some things. She is persistent in prayer, isn't she, to the Lord? The woman came and knelt before him. She's also reverent. She's worshiping him. Verse 25, Lord, help me, she said. Notice earlier she said to him in verse 22, she called him Lord, son of David. That's a Messiah title. Have mercy on me. So now skip down verse 25. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, verse 26, it's not right to take the children's bread, that's the Jews, and toss it to their dogs. There's two words for dogs. That's not the scavenger, mangy dog, the wolves and the coyotes. This is a word for puppies, a household pet, kind of a a endearing term. 
Verse 27, insulted the woman left, left immediately. Is that what it says? No. Yes, Lord, verse 27, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their, their master's table. Note the humility. Verse 28, then Jesus answered. Uh, let's see. And NIV has woman. The first word here is not woman in his, her, his reply. It's the word, oh. You say, well, what difference does that make? You'd be surprised. I'll, I'll tell you in a second. Um, then Jesus said to her, verse 28, oh, woman, you have great faith. Like I said, mega faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. There's lessons here about great faith, persistence in prayer, humility, worship, reverence. She doesn't come in demanding, she asks, but she doesn't stop asking. Jesus knew all along he was going to heal this woman's daughter of this demonic situation. I want you to notice it's a long distance healing. He doesn't have to go there. He doesn't say anything except your request is granted, go home. She goes home and finds out at the hour he had promised that is when the daughter was relieved of the demon. A pretty amazing thing. So the word oh <clears throat> in that culture, if you say woman, that's one thing. Oh, woman, there's great emotion in that. There, again, we see the compassion of Christ. He, he responds to the humble submission that she shows and her confidence in him as the Messiah and her Lord. As I said, he knew all along he would heal her. Well, then why say, why not? Why did he not answer? Why did he say, I'm sent only to the lost sheep of Israel? He's testing her, and at the same time, he's giving a lesson to the listening apostles that the Gentiles are about to be grafted in and included, not as second-class citizens, but completely as the sons and daughters of the living God. His salvation is not for Jews alone. It's for the whole world, the sins of the world he dies for. So he's definitely teaching all kinds of lessons here. We covered it mostly uh, last week. In Galatians 3.28, <clears throat> we mentioned it last week. You don't have to turn there. There's a verse, uh, there, the verse in Galatians 3.28 talks about all the possible divisions there could be and eliminates all of them. It basically says at the cross, there is no Jew nor Greek. Greek is another way of saying Gentile. He's saying at the cross, there is no division in terms of race. It doesn't matter. He's saying, he also says there's no male or female. Doesn't mean there aren't different roles in marriage and in churches and what have you, but at the cross in terms of salvation, Men have no inside track, nor do women. There's no gender difference. All uh, can receive Jesus and be saved. And then the, the other thing he says is slave or free, which is social strata. If you know anything about Hinduism, you know that there's a tremendous social uh, strata in Hinduism where the poor are considered poor because they sinned in a previous lifetime, don't give them money or help them. That's their punishment. They have to live their life out that way. Not very loving if you ask me. So uh, he heals this woman's daughter with a word, an amazing miracle. But the main lesson is the Gentiles are going to be in 
as well. <clears throat> We're going to see in chapter 16, the disciples still don't get it. I'll just warn you about that. I forgot to mention, so I know that those of you that are here are awake, say, Amen. Amen. Ken went, we're not awake. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know you are because the heater's not working and it's cold in here. You're awake. When it's that cozy, warm temperature. Oh, it is working now. It's coming on now. Okay. You might be feeling the hot air from the podium here warming you. Okay. So <clears throat> look at verse 29. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. So he's going north. There he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Let me warn you that this story is going to sound like a repeat of something that happened a few chapters ago. He's going to multiply loaves. He's going to multiply food and feed a huge crowd. You say, been there, done that. The previous time he did it, there was a different number of people, a different number of leftover baskets, a different number of available food that he has, and the audience was Je Jewish. This time it's Gentile, because he's teaching that lesson as well. Just want to warn you. Okay, Jesus left there, verse 29, went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they laid them at his feet, and he healed them. Now the word for lame some translations have other words there. Verse 30, do you see it? Uh, <clears throat> this is a Greek word that literally means elsewhere people that are lame because they are missing a limb. Got the picture? So it's one thing, and it's still a miracle, if somebody has two legs visible and they don't work and the guy can't walk and Jesus heals them and he can walk. It's a whole nother Yes, I know that everybody's saying it's getting warmer. Thank you, Gary. Appreciate you. Um, but it's a whole nother thing when there's a person with one leg and suddenly he's healed and there's twice as many legs. Pretty amazing. So uh, the point here is that the miracles continue, even though he's been withdrawing from Israel he is, until the right time when he's going to be crucified, he is having... Uh, a tremendous ministry, healing people. It's a huge crowd. Verse uh, 31, the people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, there's that word, uh, and the lame walking and the blind seeing. They praised the God of Israel. Why is that in there? Because they're not from Israel. That's their God. Those Jews, oh, that, you know, they're saying, your God is the God kind of thing. It's pretty amazing. So they praise the God of Israel. Purposely, Matthew places this here as a contrast. But Jewish leaders and a lot of Jewish people are rejecting him as Messiah. And yet, Gentiles who don't have the benefit of the Old Testament and all the predictions about a Messiah that'll be born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, die on a cross, rise from the dead, betrayed by a close friend. This is all Jewish scriptures. All of that they don't have, and yet they recognize this is God in human flesh, and they praise the God of Israel. Their, I, their full knowledge may not be that full, but they're responding in faith to the miracles. So. Uh, let's see. 
So yeah, it's a contrast for sure. The Gentiles believe and repent. So moving on. Verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. And they've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. This is a picture of, I don't know if you're around in 1969, I think it was, there was Woodstock, a three-day rock festival. People stayed there. There was inadequate facilities, clothing, and what have you. This is Christian Wood Christ stock, right? The, the people are sleeping on the hillside to be close to Jesus. It's a picture of there's so many people being healed. The line must go like Disneyland for a long ways. They're waiting. They don't want to leave. But meanwhile, they don't have the modern convenience of fast food. You can't go to McDavid's and get a, you know, falafel sandwich or whatever, uh, falafel burger. There's no fast food restaurants. There's no stores. So they're out there and they're running out of food. One day, okay, it's a fast. Two, three days, it's kind of becoming a crisis is the point. So he's saying to them, I have compassion on these people. They don't have anything to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry. By the way, that's what the, the disciples suggested a couple chapters ago when he did this miracle with the Jews. Send them away. There's too many people. That's the right thing to do. Get rid of them. Uh, and that's when he says in that part of Matthew, you give them something to eat. Do you remember? Puts it on them. They may collapse on the way is the end of verse 32. His disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Now, this is one of two times you're going to see it at the beginning, uh, also in chapter 16, where you just want to hit yourself in the head and go, how thick and dumb are these disciples? Don't they remember that they have spiritual amnesia. Jesus came through and fed a huge crowd. Remember, 5,000 men in the Jewish situation. We said last week they only count the men, so you got to figure at least as many women, so that's 10,000 people, but that doesn't count children. There could be 15, 20, 25,000 people he fed. Do they have spiritual amnesia? Let me ask this question. Do you, do I, sometimes have spiritual amnesia. I'm freaking out about the situation right now, forgetting he came through in September, he came through in April, he came through in January, he came through yesterday, right? We tend to be so focused on our little problem and not go, he's the God of the impossible. He came through before, what am I worried about? So they have a little bit of spiritual amnesia. Where are we going to get food kind of thing? So I'm so proud of Jesus in verse 34, because I, I don't think I would have been this polite. Where are we going to get enough food in this remote place? He just asked the question, 34, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. The numbers are different. My point is two different miracles. Seven, a few small fish. Seven loaves, you think, oh, big loaves like Ghirardelli Square, you get those big... A loaf to them is like a hamburger bun and flat. It's really small. Got it? It's a hopeless situation. Um, we're going to find out in verse 38 that the number's 4,000 men. 
add in 4,000 women, that's 8,000. Two kids per couple, make it 12, 10, 15,000 people. It's a huge crowd. Uh, verse 35, he told the crowd to sit down on the ground. By the way, it was sit down on the grass when the different season, the grass is dry now uh, in the previous miracle. Sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish. And when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And they, in turn, gave them to the people. He involves the disciples again. Could he have just snapped his fingers and everybody's stomach's full? Could have. Or just snapped his fingers and everybody has a happy meal and a Coke right next to them. And that's pretty cool. Why involve the disciples? Because handing out food to 10 or 15,000 people for 12 guys is going to take some time, isn't it? He has them hand out the food. And it's the picture of he's handing it out and he just keeps handing it out and it just keeps. What is this? It's a creative miracle, as in not creative like an artist creative, but creating, right? Remember that God in Genesis 1 created out of nothing. Jesus can do the same. The same lessons from the Jewish miracle are apparent here. Like what? Very little given to Jesus is much, right? Because he'll multiply it. He'll use it great, greatly. So the disciples get a lesson. The people get fed, and they're Gentiles. Again, the Gentile lesson continues. He takes the, the food Notice he gives thanks, verse 36. I like to harp on this. I'm sorry if it's annoying to anybody. Do you thank God every time you eat? Jesus did. Take a second. Even in a restaurant, especially in a restaurant. Even when I'm alone, yes, thank God. Because God provided the food, the air you're breathing, whatever you're drinking, God provided it. One way or another, he gave you the ability to earn the money so that you could buy the food, however you want to say it. God provides for his people. He proves that again and again, doesn't he? He gives thanks. He breaks them and gives them to the disciples. They give it to the people. Verse 37, they all ate and were satisfied. You know what that means? It doesn't mean they each got 0.06 milligrams of, you know, like, oh, okay, thank you. It's better than nothing. They ate to where you like loosening your belt going, I couldn't eat another bite. But do you have any dessert? Just kidding. Uh, they all ate and were satisfied. It's a picture, isn't it, of Christ spiritually. He comes to us. We open our hearts to him. He comes into our lives. We take and eat and we are satisfied. We never thirst again spiritually. We never hunger again spiritually. Afterward, I'm still in verse 37. The disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Jewish example, how many baskets? Anybody remember? Twelve. Very good. Can you get an A? Twelve baskets. This time, seven. Oh, I get the lesson. Twelve, twelve apostles, twelve disciples, uh, twelve tribes, Jewish. More leftovers for the Jews. Wrong. The word for baskets in the Jewish example of this feeding is for a little basket you would carry a little lunch in for one person. 
The word for baskets here is a word the Gentiles used, and it's like a hamper. These seven baskets each could hold more than the 12 baskets altogether. It's more leftovers. Why leftovers? And why did they pick them up? Why didn't they just leave them to the birds? Don't waste what God's given you, right? All kinds of lessons here. So they pick up the baskets, notice, of broken pieces that are left over. Verse 38, the numbers who ate, 4,000 men besides women and children. Amazing miracle. God will provide. Oh, and John 6 is the Jewish version of this miracle, which we had a few chapters ago. You don't need to turn there. It's a very long chapter. A lot happens in that chapter, uh, among which he feeds the multitudes. It's John's telling of the story. But John includes the fact that the Jews are so impressed with the food, the free stuff, forget the Messiah thing, the spiritual, the free stuff, they want to take him by force in John 6 and make him king. And he withdraws and doesn't want to do that. And, sa- and teaches a whole lesson in John 6, which Matthew leaves out, possibly because it, it's, it turns your stomach a little. He says to the Jews in John 6, unless you eat This bread is my flesh. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And the Jews are so offended by that because a kosher Jew would never eat flesh, let alone flesh of a human being. Um, And they would never eat, they would never drink blood. It's in the Old Testament, Leviticus and elsewhere. A lot of people abandon him in John 6. And that's where Jesus says to the disciples, are you guys going away too? And Peter says, who are we going to go to? You're the only ones that, you're the only one that has the words of life. So this is an amazing miracle. It shows that he will provide for his people. He has the power that God has to create. Um, Verse 39, after Jesus had sent the crowd away, full, I might add, right? He got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. How many have been to Magadan? Answer, nobody. How do you know that? Because scholars are not sure where this is. The theory is that it's another way of saying Magdala, which is where Mary Magdalene was from. But nobody really knows much about Magdala. But it's probably the west side of the lake, um, back to the Jewish side. Why? Because about you'll, you'll see why it goes back to the Jewish side because of what's about to happen with the scribes, uh, the, I'm sorry, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in chapter 16. All right, let's dive into chapter 16. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. Those of you on Zoom, I forgot to ask, are you awake? Okay, good. I see one awake. Amen side. Say amen or wave. Good. Chapter 16. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. So we need to unpack this a little bit. The first four words in the NIV, the Pharisees and Sadducees, are the most shocking part of the verse because they hated each other. They're both um, uh, wings of 
the Jewish leadership. The Pharisees were conservative. The Pharisees believed the whole Old Testament, but they also believed all of the written traditions and man-made laws that men, rabbis, had made up. The Pharisees believed in angels, demons, life after death, hell, heaven, Satan. You say, so what? The Sadducees were the liberals. They only believed the first five books, the Pentateuch of the Old Testament. They did not believe in angels, demons, life after death, punishment after death, reward after death. They believed you get the reward now. Was that biblical? No. But they were uh, wealthy leaders, more wealthy than the Pharisees. The two clashed constantly. They hated each other. All kinds of religious differences. The Pharisees hated the Romans having taken over Israel. The Sadducees hated that as well, but they were willing to play ball and compromise with them to keep their money and their power and their position. So they have very little in common. There was much more clashing, if you will, even than the Democrats and the Republicans in Congress. You ever see them go at it and they're always pointing fingers and accusing and okay, don't get me started on that or we'll be here all night. Um, so uh, we already talked about all that. The Pharisees were looking for the Messiah because he was predicted in the Old Testament. The Sadducees, not that much. Didn't really care that much. Um, okay. So the Sadducees, keep in mind, they only believe Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's it. Throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament. They are enemies, and here they are, palling it up and hanging out together. Do you know why? Because they've got a common enemy. They realize this Jesus is attracting huge crowds. We better do something. So they come together and together ask for one thing. Did you see what it is? Keep in mind, we're in Matthew 16. Think of how many, I didn't add them up, but impossible because it doesn't list every single one. How many tens of thousands of miracles have there been of healing, of raising the dead, of casting out demons, of calming storms, of uh, walking on the water, of multiplying loaves and fish? And how many, you know what those miracles are, folks? signs that point to something, and they point to Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. Again, the contrast. Gentiles, they praise the God of Israel. This guy's the real deal. Here come the Jewish leaders asking for something, not just a sign, a sign from heaven. What do you mean? Something colossal. Some prophets in the Old Testament summoned fire down from the sky. We want something, some big sign. Write your name in the sky, Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. And you better write it in Greek, Latin, Hebrew, Aramaic. Just go nuts. Pig Latin. Jesus is the, go ahead. A sign from heaven. As if they don't have enough signs. Pretty amazing. Obviously, you already know, he doesn't do it. Could he? Absolutely. Right? But 
what we've been learning through 15 chapters in Matthew is miracles do not make people have faith unless there's faith there already. Miracles confirm the faith for those who believe. Those who don't believe, you know what they want to see after they see a miracle? Another miracle, a better one. And let me get my phone out and videotape it this time. They can see miracle after miracle. They just don't believe. The Pharisees a couple chapters ago called him uh, uh, the son of Beelzebul, the devil, saying he was doing those miracles because he had spiritual power from the dark side, like Star Wars, right? Couldn't be more wrong. So they want a sign from heaven. Had he done it, they wouldn't have believed anyway. I can guarantee you. Um, so uh, Elijah, right, Old Testament, call down fire. Um, keep your finger here and go to John 3, just for a second. We looked at this four weeks ago, but very quickly, John chapter 3. But keep your finger in Matthew 16. <clears throat> John 3 is the visit of Nicodemus to Jesus at night. I want you to notice what he says. We're not going to go through the whole passage, don't worry. I just want you to see verse 2, chapter 3 of John, verse 2. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's the leading teacher of the Old Testament. He's a Pharisee. He came to Jesus at night and said, verse 2, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come for God. Sorry, come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God wasn't with him. Pretty good, right? Most of his contemporaries wouldn't agree, but he and others, we know Joseph of Arimathea was also a Jewish leader who believed they helped with the burial of Jesus. Do you remember all that? Okay, now go back to this passage. They're asking for a sign. Nicodemus doesn't ask for a sign. You notice that? He says, we know. You got to be from God. No one could do what you're doing. They don't ask. They want a bigger, better sign. Verse 2. He replied with a little weather lesson, which sounds like comes from left field, right? When evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, earthly weather, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times, the season. That word for times is not chronos, meaning chronological time. Uh, a chronometer is a clock or a watch. It's the Kairos, it's the word for age, season. Okay? Lest you think this is just 2,000 years ago, in a second I'm going to bring it up to date, and we're going to talk about the signs of the times now. What season we're in now. But for, in any case... What's he talking about? Okay, first of all, um, there's a mariner's saying, people that, you know, live on boats, and it is red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Okay, a way of discerning the weather. Now, this is pretty primitive meteorology, right? Now we have Doppler, Radar, 10, 14-day forecasts, and they're usually wrong. You ever notice, by the way? Our joke at our house is that the weatherman has a dartboard with partly cloudy suns, and he just, 
partly cloudy Thursday. They're often wrong, right? Sometimes they're right. In any case, he's saying you're able to look at some signs earthly-wise and make some evaluations based on those signs from what you've learned. What does he say? You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. What did they ask for? A sign from heaven. What he's about to say is, here you are asking for a sign from heaven. Guess what? I am the sign. Just me being here is a sign. Everything I'm doing is a sign. The wisdom you hear me speak, the miracles, it's all a sign. And you supposedly spiritual folks, it's going right over your head. And look who it's being revealed to. Gentiles, simple people, all you educated people. By the way, there were Pharisees who were scribes. They wrote down the scriptures and copied them. They would memorize great portions of the Old Testament. They should have realized because the Messiah, besides the things I mentioned before, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, dies on a cross, betrayed by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver, hands and feet pierced. They pierce his side. This is all Old Testament prophecy. In addition to all of that, the Messiah was supposed to be able to heal blind eyes, open deaf ears, and open the mouth mouths of the mute. The lame will walk. It's all in the Old Testament, Isaiah and elsewhere. They should have known. Okay, so uh, in a second, we're going to take a detour because I want to show you a, a, an unusual verse. Um, they're, he's going to point out their own blindness. Okay, let's do it now. Let's go to Luke chapter 2, Matthew, Mark, Luke, two books to the right. Luke chapter 2 will only be here a second. An interesting thing happens that you might have missed. Luke chapter 2, chapter 1 is very long. It's 80 verses. Chapter 2 of Luke, uh, which is also kind of a long chapter. Uh, so Jesus is born. Look at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. This is Luke 2, 25. Simeon was a righteous, devout man waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. He's waiting for the Messiah. He's looking for it. And when you're seeking God, he reveals himself, right? So, it had been revealed to him, verse 26, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ. So he goes to the temple courts. They bring Jesus eight days later to be circumcised to the temple. Um, look at verse 28. He takes him in his arm and he prays God and he says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, now dismiss your servant in peace. I can die in peace. I've seen the Messiah. What a beautiful thing. It's a child. It's a human being. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the what? Gentiles. This is a Jewish context. Pretty amazing. And for the glory of your people, Israel. Um, the child's father and mother uh, marveled at what was said. Um, hold on. There we go. 34 is what we want. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, here it comes. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising 
of many in Israel, listen, and what's the context? Who's he talking about? This child, little Jesus, right? And to be a sign. Did you see that? Who is this baby? He's a sign himself that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. He's talking about the crucifixion. It's going to just crush Mary when it happens. He himself, Jesus, is the sign. A couple chapters ago, a similar thing happened. They wanted a sign, not from heaven, just a sign. Do you remember? And Jesus says, the only sign, basically he says the same thing he's going to say here. He's going to refer them to the Old Testament, to Jonah. Let's read. Um, verse 4, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign. We'll come back to that. But none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Then Jesus left them and went away. There's a lot in this verse. Let's take it apart. First of all, a wicked, meaning exceedingly evil, sinful generation. We live today, ladies and gentlemen, in a wicked and evil generation. If you could transport somebody from the 1500s, the 1800s, even the 1930s to today, sit them in your living room and flip the channels on the TV, they would be shocked what they would be seeing and hearing, even in the commercials where there is blatant homosexuality, lust, you name it, right? We've seen it so much, we're just kind of, oh, yeah, there we go. They would be shocked. We're being inoculated slowly with this evil to where we go, oh, yeah. We shouldn't be, don't let your eyes look at that if you can help it. Okay. A wicked that's the first thing, generation, and adulterous. He does not mean adulterous like somebody, Harry here is sleeping with Susie, who's not his wife. That's not what he means. He means spiritually. Wicked deals with spiritual things, evil in God's sight. Adulterous, God calls Israel an adulteress again and again and again in the Old Testament, because God said to Israel, you are my bride, my wife, and you're cheating on me, God talking, with, your, with these other pagan gods all around you, Baal and the other ones. He's saying to the Jewish religious leaders, you're part of a wicked, evil, and adulterous spiritually generation. And he's telling them that you Pharisees and Sadducees are cheating on me as well by having other gods. You've made up a whole God that I'm not with all your man-made rules. You are worshiping money and the way things go in the temple with their selling and buying and exchanging currency at a profit. You are a wicked and adulterous generation. That's who seeks after a sign. Pause. If you, Christian woman or man, are constantly needing, I need a sign for my faith. Something's wrong with your faith. Um, Jesus says to the apostles in the gospel of John, especially to Thomas, because remember, <clears throat> Thomas says, after the death of Christ, he's absent when Jesus shows up. And the apostles tell him, we saw him. He's alive. What does he say? Unless I can put my fingers in the holes in his wrists, hands, 
and feet and see the hole in his, put my hand in the side, I won't believe. Jesus shows up and instead of chiding him says, go ahead, knock yourself out. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Do you remember? A profession of faith. And Jesus says to him, I'm going to mess it up, but it's from the Gospel of John. You believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who believe who have not seen. That's you. I don't know about you. I've never seen Jesus. Okay? I don't need to see him. If he wants to show, show up right here right now, awesome. If he doesn't, my faith doesn't decrease one ounce. I know based on the scriptures, based on the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, based on the changed lives I've seen, including my own and many others. Yes, he has a long way to go with me personally, but still, I believe, and so do you, or you wouldn't be here on a Tuesday night. Although we do have some good snacks back there, and some of you come just for that. In any case, it's wicked to need a sign. If I just could have a miracle, because then you start to get addicted to the miracles and you need another one, another little liver quiver, so to speak. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. What do you mean Jonah? Jonah and Jesus have a lot in common. In another place in the gospels, the, the so-called knowledgeable Pharisees say, search the scriptures and see no prophet comes from Galilee. You remember that? Guess where Jonah was from? Hello, Galilee, right? Two places it mentions it in the Old Testament. That's the first thing. They're both from Galilee, which is the hick town area. It's not New York City. It's like Louisiana or somewhere way out in the hicks and the sticks. If you're from Louisiana, don't write me a letter. I'm not putting you down. I'm just saying it ain't New York City there. The next thing is Jonah is on a boat. Do you remember? And there's a storm, which is the wrath of God against him. And he to his credit admits to the people on the boat, you bet you better throw me overboard because this is because of me. I'm willing to sacrifice myself to save some folks. And they throw him overboard. Jesus is willing to sacrifice himself to save a whole bunch of folks, everybody in this room and everybody on Zoom, except for that person. No, I'm just kidding. And Jonah disappears for three days. Jesus disappears for three days in the belly of the earth right? Like the belly of the fish. He tells this more in, I think it's chapter 12 of Matthew. Um, so Jonah, in a sense, is dead in that fish and is raised, spit out on the shore. Jesus is raised on the third day. Um, the two of them preach. Jonah ends up, okay, goes and preaches, and a whole country repents, right? And Jesus preaches, and many, uh, uh, be, you know, believe and repent and what have you. So um, Jonah and Jesus have a lot of things in common. Jonah is not a great prophet. If you read the whole book, at the end, he's kind of like a big baby and doesn't get his way. And he's kind of mad that the people repented because he said, it's coming down in fire unless you repent. Kind of hoping that it would. 
Who does Jonah witness to? Guess what? Gentiles. And they do repent, and he goes, oh, now you're going to be nice to them, aren't you? And he's mad at God. I'm giving you the short version. Now you don't have to read the book. Just kidding. Um, so the sign of Jonah, he's saying, my death and resurrection is going to be the ultimate sign. And yes, it's from heaven. Because I am the sign, and I'm from heaven. Virgin birth, etc. All the miracles. Can't you see it? He's pointing out their blindness. And there are three types of blindness. And then we're going to take our two-minute break because some of you are falling asleep. Number one, uh, unbelievers are triply blind. Number one, we are blinded, the Bible says, by our own sin. Um, Their foolish heart was darkened, Romans 1.21. The natural man doesn't receive the things of God. He can't even discern them. That's 1 Corinthians 2. Psalm 82, speaking of uh, unbelievers, they walk on in darkness. They have eyes, but they don't see. So you can be blinded by your own sin. Number two, some are blinded by Satan. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4. The God of this age, listen, has blinded their minds, small g, meaning Satan so they don't believe. And the third blindness you might be surprised to hear is a blindness that comes from God. God blinds people in judgment, like Luke 19. Um, He says to the Jews, because you didn't believe, now these things are, your eyes are blinded from them. Uh, First Corinthians talks about a veil that's over the eyes of the Jews until the fullness of the Gentiles come in and all of that. Okay, Um, we need to talk about the signs today. But let's take our two-minute break and stretch our aging bodies. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know and there's snacks on the back table. Those of you on Zoom, don't go away. Two minutes, we'll be right back. Don't go away. There we go. Welcome back. Find your seats, if you will, those of you that are here, and grab your treats. He is showing the Pharisees their blindness in the fact that they need a sign in order to believe, and no sign has helped them to believe. All the miracles meant nothing to them. They really have no clue. What signs did they miss? They missed John the Baptist's appearance and his pointing out Christ as the the Messiah, the one who takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb of God. Do you remember that? He must increase and I must decrease. They missed that. They missed all of Jesus' preaching. They missed the miracles, the healing, the raising the dead, the casting out demons, the multiplying food, the walking on the water, calming storms, restoring storms, restoring limbs, the wisdom in his preaching we mentioned, his birth in Bethlehem, all the prophecies fulfilled. They should have known. They missed him. So, Uh, we are living in a special time, folks. If you're hoping that I'm going to say, this is it, might be a a while off. Are we living in the general time of the end? I believe we are. Could it still be a ways off? I believe it could. I'm just telling you. But um, there are all kinds of signs that Jesus speaks of wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, widespread sickness, pandemics, 
earthquakes, famines, false prophets, and Christs. You can't look at our world and not admit false Christs and prophets have greatly uh, increased. Um, who will mislead many? The rise of witchcraft, pharmakia, which is sorcery, translated in the New Testament in the King James, but the word pharmakia, P-H-A. RMA, pharma, key is where we get pharmaceutical, the use of drugs, mind-altering substances. Um, let's see. Ezekiel says that God will restore Israel to their land before the end comes. How many knew that, know that that happened in 1948? That's why I say general time of the end. We're seeing all these signs. Men will love evil rather than good. Uh, uh, sorry, darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Um, there'll be apostasy and people denying the faith, denying the second coming. There'll be, how about this one, lawlessness. Have you ever seen this much lawlessness? There's always been shoplifting. Now there's a law in California, you, you can do that up to $950 worth of stuff. That's just an astounding thing to me. Smash and grab. Have you seen that in the jewelry stores? And it's just astounding to me. Men will call good evil and evil good. Is that happening? So are you saying Jesus is coming back tomorrow? I hope so, but no, I'm not saying that. Um, seducing spirits and the doctrines of demons. There's so many signs that uh, an increase of lawlessness. Yeah, we talked about that. A hostile power north of Israel will be an enemy of Israel and will eventually invade along with Persia, which is Iran, and other countries in the north. Could that happen now? Sure. Revelation 13, a one-world government. There's always a movement for that unification of all the countries of the world, the knocking down of borders and... Um, Revelation 13 is the, is the Antichrist chapter more than any other chapter in which one man controls the whole world and does something, listen, that in all of human history was laughed at and impossible until now. What's that? Control all commerce, all business, all transactions, because you have to have a mark on your right hand or your forehead, or you can't buy or sell anything. 20, 30 years ago, you couldn't have pulled it off. Could you do it now? Absolutely. Amazing. We've been to foreign countries where you credit card, boop, and there it is, and you get home and you see the bill, and it's an astounding thing. It would, it's going to take some time for that whole system to develop, but there's, there's signs, aren't there? And your unsaved friends might remark, boy, things are getting bad, right? I Even unsaved friends of mine recognize, man, the crime and the just things are getting crazy in the world. But do they see them in the light of the gospel and of the Bible and of end times that it's a wake-up call, right? Jesus calls those things I mentioned, wars, rumors of wars, all that, birth pangs. If you know anything, ladies, you know more than I do about birth pains. If you've had a baby, you know that birth pains get more intense and closer and closer and closer together in time as they go on. 
Can I get an amen from ladies? Amen. Yeah. Okay. We men, we have to do the coaching, which is a hard job. Okay. Um, I'm going to hear about that one when I get home. Anyway, listen to this. There'll be lawlessness will abound and the love of many will grow cold. That's happening, isn't it? Um, men and women will be without, this is all predictions for the end times. Listen, without natural affection. What, what do you mean? Natural affection built into humanity is the a natural affection of a man or woman for their child, right? But we kill millions of babies. We've killed, I don't even know the number. I don't even, oh, makes me shudder. Natural affection. Natural affection built into human beings is that a man would be attracted to a woman and a woman would be attracted to a man. Don't make me draw you a picture, but there's some unnatural affection going on these days. All of these things are the beginning of sorrows. Things are starting to line up. Jesus says, look up, be watchful. We need to be prayed up in the word. We need to be fellowshipping with other believers. If you don't go to a church regularly, and I'm talking to you Zoom people too, if you don't go to a church regularly, you need to find one. And if it's 30 miles away, then so be it. You need to fellowship with other believers. This is your family. Okay, now that I made you feel guilty, let's move on, shall we? We need to be obeying, fellowshipping, yeah, all of that. Okay, now let's move on. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. You never know. Uh, verse, the end of verse four. No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. We covered that. Look at the last sentence in verse 4. There's more going on there. It sounds redundant. You see, he says something twice, but they're different. Watch. Jesus left them and went away. You say, well, if he left them, he went away. Two different words in Greek. One is he left them, that area, but the other word is much more grandiose in terms of he's turning his back on the Jewish leaders in a big way. In chapter 23 of Matthew, he's going to read them the riot act and really tell them who they are. Whitewashed graves, hypocrites, sons of the devil, you know, all of that, but not yet. Now, just when you think the apostles must be getting it now, the lights are going on. Verse five, when they went across the lake, that's the Sea of Galilee, the disciples forgot to take bread. I don't know why they had seven basketfuls of leftovers. Did they eat them? They pig out and they forgot to take bread. You say, why is this a big deal? Because you can't stop off at the drive boat through restaurant, float through restaurant and get and make an order. They forgot to take bread. Okay. That's just a little detail. Verse six, be careful. Jesus said to them, beyond your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you know anything about bread, you need yeast to make bread. He just had a confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees concerning they're wicked, they're adulterous for asking for a sign, they're unfaithful, they don't believe. Zero faith. You with me? That's what he's warning them about. They're thinking in terms of worldly stuff. 
Verse 7, they discussed this among themselves and said, oh, he said that because we didn't bring any bread. I, I know I make mistakes and God must shake his head at me. Even I don't think I'm this dumb, right? Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Yeast, leaven, same thing. Most of the time, but not all the time, in the Bible, leaven or yeast is a symbol for evil. What is always a symbol of is something small that can really take over a whole thing, a whole area. He's saying, based on that conversation he just had with the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Jewish leaders, beware of their teaching, because it'll grow and it'll fester like a cancer. What is the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Number one, it's their hypocrisy. They say one thing and do another. And number two, it's their spiritual blindness. For the Pharisees, it's that they take the word of God and place it under, not as important as, the traditions of men. We had that in the last chapter, do you remember? For the Sadducees, it's being willing to play games with the Romans and they don't believe the whole word of God. All of their teaching, but you have to understand, he's warning them against, but you have to understand these were the religious experts. I wouldn't say what I'm about to say, so don't misquote me. But imagine if I said, beware of the bad teaching of, and then I named a bunch of really biblical teachers that you all know. I wouldn't say that, but that's the impact it would have on them. He can't mean the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's hinting, that's what they think. He mentioned yeast, bread, we, didn't, we were guilt, feeling guilty, we forgot to take bread. Aware of their discussion, no doubt, verse 8, Jesus asked, you of little faith. By the way, this is a chapter about faith. What we just saw in the scribes and the Pharisees is no faith, right? We want to see a sign and a big one from heaven. Now we're going to see little faith. Sadly, it's his disciples who've hung out with him a couple of years. Oh, ye of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000, the Jewish miracle of the feeding? And how many basketfuls you gathered? Object lessons so you'd each remember. Or the seven loaves we just talked about for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls, bigger baskets, you gather. Don't you remember? Here it is again. What did I say it was? Spiritual amnesia, right? God blessed you last Thursday, last September, two years ago, nine years ago, 14 years ago. He's always come through for you, and yet you freak out when there's a crisis. Don't you remember? Don't you remember? That's what he's saying, verse 11. How is it you don't understand that I wasn't talking to you about bread, but be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And then, verse 12, they understood that he wasn't telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching, the lifestyle, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders. 
there are some great Bible teachers on radio, on TV, in books, on the internet. There's some great ones. There's also some unbelievably bad ones. Popular, huge ministries. That guy initials J-O that we always make fun of. But there's many, many others. Jo Joyce Meyer, that I could go on a uh, hundred of them. That's who he's saying. Beware who you listen to. You know who you should listen to? The Bible. There's a verse in, I usually do it when I start a book. I don't remember if I did it with Matthew. There's a verse in the book of Acts that tells you to not believe anything I say or your pastor says. He said, what did you say? I said, there's a verse in Acts from memory, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it's Acts 17, 11, let's see, uh, which says not to believe anything anybody says without checking it out with the word of God. Amazing. I got it right. First time ever. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. Did you hear that? If what somebody teaches doesn't line up with scripture in context, you're supposed to judge it and get rid of it and don't believe it because that's yeast, folks. And it's on TV, it's on the radio, it's on the internet, it's in books, it's everywhere now, more than ever. It takes focus on the word of God to remain faithful to what God has taught. If you can't back up a doctrine with at least two, not one, two scriptures, forget it. Don't believe it. And make sure the scriptures are in context. Okay, we already talked about that. The disciples just saw him feed a huge crowd and they're worried about bread. Maybe they think, now I'm going to give them a pass here. Maybe they think, you know, even if we had half a loaf, he could multiply that. But with no bread, even Jesus would be powerless. Yeah, right. Right? He could make, you know, chicken marsala if he wanted to with no food, right? He could just make it happen. Um, he takes care of our needs. Um, we already talked about that. Okay. Um, beware of their teaching. The word is didache, D-I-D-A-C-H-E. I think I'm saying that right in Greek. It means their doctrine, their teaching, their legalism, their liberalism, their hypocrisy, all of that stuff. Uh, we need to remind ourselves of all the times God has come through so we won't have the spiritual amnesia that they did. Uh, notice also they're distracted, and so are you and me, by the physical. The spiritual is invisible, right? Jesus, angels, heaven, hell, repentance, the Holy Spirit. These are invisible things. We can feel when thing, things happen that are the Holy Spirit, but you can't see them. But we're distracted by our five senses, aren't we? And a lot of people have great faith and then they have a health crisis or a monetary crisis or a family crisis with a spouse or a kid or a parent or a friend or a job. And we get so distracted with the physical 
world, I'm not saying don't live in the physical world, look both ways before you cross the street, but remember the spiritual is the higher plane. And God has already told you he'll never leave you or forsake you. He'll meet your needs. He's the good shepherd. Okay, we're moving on. Um, now, how much time do we have? Oh, we have quite a bit of time. Uh, <laughs> so false teachers be on the lookout. Test everything. Hold fast to that which is good. It's got to line up with scripture. Verse 13. This is... I doubt we'll finish this in 15 minutes. There's so much here. Let me just warn you. When Even verse 13, before we even get beyond that. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men, people, say the Son of Man is? Favorite title for himself, Son of Man. It goes back to, to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where the Son of Man is clearly the son of God, but he's a human and he's the Messiah. We won't go there now. We've done that other times. But believe it or not, I'm going to spend probably more time than you're expecting on the two words, Caesarea Philippi. You say, why? Let's get to the question. This is the whole thing. Who do men say that I am? Isn't that the most important question? Yes, it is. But you've got to understand the context because this is no ordinary place. This is, in the whole world, the center of all worship. You say, Caesarea Philippi? Wouldn't it be Jerusalem? For the Jews, yes. But Caesarea Philippi was a mega place for worship of other gods. There were at least 14 temples to different gods. You could go God shopping and pick the one you like, and I'm going to go over there and worship there. I like the music better there. I don't care that their gods fake. It was a center of pagan worship. This is supposed to be a retreat for the disciples, but he purposely takes them to this place. Uh, Caesarea Philippi, 25 miles north-northeast of Galilee, um, very Gentile area. It's the headwaters of the Jordan River, which is the lifeline for all of Israel, number one, okay? There are uh, idols everywhere, rival deities. The Syrian uh, so-called god, idol, false god, Baal is worshipped was worshipped there. Um, Pan, P-A-N, the god of nature, a big one, who, by the way, why would you worship this? Upper body, waist up, man. Lower body for Pan, goat. Odd, right? He played the flute. The pan, ever heard of the Pan flute? That's where it comes from. Pan. He invented frying pan. No, I made that up. Um, Anyway, all kinds of, there was a cave there, and this is where Jesus takes them, this area. There's a cave there where supposedly Pan was born, half, God, half man, uh, upper body, lower body, goat. He had little horns. Sound like anybody? Okay. Um, there's a temple of white marble to the godhead of Caesar there. 
you could come and pick. It was the supermarket, the smorgasbord of deities. Of all places, he takes them there and says, now do you understand the question? He's gonna, the real question is, who do you say that I am? And in Greek, that, it's the next verse, uh, two verses later. He says it emphatically. By the way, the word you is plural. Who do you all say that I am? And it's worded this way in Greek. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? It's the most important part of that sentence. So he deliberately goes there to compare himself with all the other religions. And so he's leading up to that second question, but he wants to introduce it with the first one. Okay. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Not, what do they say that I do? There's no question about, they know what he does. But the point is, are they reading the signs correctly? Who do they, other people, what's the word on the street? He's asking for a, um, uh, a Harris poll or a Gallup poll, right? You ever see them on TV? 62% think this, 29%, 11%, whatever. Who do men, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 14, they replied, some say, John the Baptist. Okay, this makes no sense. Number one, it's silly. John the Baptist is his cousin, okay, Gospel of John. Number two, they knew each other and ministered at the same time. John baptized Jesus, right? They think John came back to life. Well, Jesus was already alive then. Don't get me started, right? Elizabeth was related, his mother, John's mother, to Mary, remember? Some say you're John the Baptist, come back to life. We already saw that with Herod, thought that, who had, Jesus, had John the Baptist killed. Others say you're Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. May I just say, wrong, 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 right? What's amazing is what they don't say. We're going to go through each of these names quickly. What they don't say is, survey says, how many say he's the Messiah? They don't even mention that. How many say he's the son of God? It's, it's 0.01%. Did you notice that? Some think you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah or Jeremiah. Okay. Now, Elijah was the greatest of the prophets. Okay. Some might think he's him because Elijah was predicted to come back to Israel as a forerunner to the Messiah. John the Baptist was the guy that came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Okay. Do you know about Passover? Jews who are literal about Passover, if you do it right as a Jew, when you have Passover, you have the meal, you set the table, you leave a door open. Do you know about this? in case Elijah shows up. You literally leave a door open. Secondly, at the table, how many are we for dinner, honey? 11. Okay, set the table for 12. What? Why? You leave a chair open with utensils, everything there, in case Elijah shows up to remind the Jews he's coming back. Revelation 11, there are the two mouthpieces, prophets of God, most people think are Moses and Elijah come back. Some people think Jesus is Elijah. 
In terms of the number of miracles, nobody compares to Jesus. Let me just tell you. Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, nobody. Who's Jeremiah? He's the weeping prophet. He and Elijah have something in common. They call out sin in Israel. So did Jesus. They go against the leadership. Uh, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Read the book of Jeremiah. He's weeping over the sin of his people and how ignorant they are and they're not listening. And there's also a book called, wait for it, Lamentations. Do you know what that means? It's like not whining, but it's like grieving, the grieving book kind of thing. He's the weeping prophet. It's astounding to me that that's the public opinion poll. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. It's not, and a few say you're the Messiah. The, the, the last category is, or one of the other prophets. Now, I don't know if that means the guys that came in the past, maybe you're Ezekiel, maybe you're Jonah, come back to life. But, or do they mean he's a prophet nowadays? Is he, Jesus, a prophet? Yes. Mouthpiece of God. That's what a prophet is. Uh, a prophet says, thus saith the Lord, though. Third person. He, God, says this, says Elijah, and I'm telling you. Jesus says, but I say to you over and over and over. Meaning what? The word of God's coming out of my mouth, says Jesus. So now comes the big question. Yeah, we already talked about that. Verse 15, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Emphatic. All important question. I wasn't there. I intend to rent this video when I get to heaven. I want to see this. But I expect that there was silence. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Now, Peter's the leader of the apostles. He's going to speak for them. And they certainly have little faith, right? Oh, it's the bread thing. There's a lot they don't get. But Peter's about to speak up. I don't know if the others went, what did he say? Or if they went, yeah, that's, we believe that too. I don't know. But Peter's the one who speaks. And he says, and notice he doesn't waffle. Well, I kind of think, look at, look at how definite he is. You are the Christ. You are the, listen, Messiah, the one predicted, the anointed one. And then he goes a step further. The son of the living God. Did you see that? This is, folks, the biggest question. The most important question is not where you live, what you eat. All those things are important. What you do for a living. You, it's all come, comes down to one thing. In eternity, when there's judgment day, it's not, people are not judged for primarily what sins did you commit? It's all, what did you do with Jesus? Who do you say that I am? I want you to notice that his identity is everything. It's not, I believe Jesus did great miracles. Well, that's true. That won't get you into heaven. Who is he? Why is this so important? You're, why are you hammering this home? I'm not doing it. Matthew's doing it. The Holy Spirit's doing it. And here's why. Because there's all kinds of people 
who believe in Jesus, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and Christian scientists and Unity School of Christianity, and I could name a thousand other. There's 5,000 cults in the, in the U.S. alone who believe in Jesus. And you know what they have in common? They always demote Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses, he's not God. He's a God, small g. He's the first creation of Jehovah God. Meaning what? That there was a time when Jesus didn't, the Son of God didn't exist? Yes, that's what they believe. In fact, who do you say that I am, Jehovah's Witness? Ask him. If they're honest, you know what they'll tell you? He's Michael, the archangel. What? Where do you get the book of Illusions, chapter 4? <laughs> Mormons believe that Father God and Mother God, who? You heard me had sex in heaven, and they had a bunch of kids, and one of them is Jesus. Do you see what I mean? Who do you say that I am? In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, there's another Jesus. There's lots of Je Jesuses, lots of gospels out there. Be careful. Who do you say that I am? Peter's about to get an A+. And then, shortly after, next week, he's going to get an F. What? You'll see. Get behind me, Satan. But for now, let's give him the A he deserves, and he doesn't deserve it, and here's why. I say you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son. Notice the words. It doesn't say the Son of God. Did you see that? Wouldn't that have been right? Yes. The Son of the living God. The Jews had the term living God, to distinguish the real God, and there's only one real God, from all the dead gods. You say, dead God? Yes, all those idols they worship, whether it's money, fame, power, sex, drugs, alcohol, or Baal, or Allah, or the God of, uh, Jude of um, sorry, not Judaism, the God of Jehovah's Witnesses, the God of the Mormons, the God of the Unity School of Christianity. It's all another God. Some of them, it's radically different. Allah is radically different from God in Islam. But the Jehovah's Witnesses, close. Does that count? No. Close counts in horseshoes, hand grenades, and ballroom dancing. Otherwise, close doesn't count. Right? I say you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You say, what does that mean? Listen, I'm a human being. My wife is a human being. We got married and we had a son. Therefore, our son could not be a chicken, a horse, a cow, a mosquito. If we're human beings and we have a son, you know what he is? He's a human being. If God has a son, an only begotten son, he has to be God. The son of the living God, the Messiah, both. That's what was predicted. The Messiah is supposed to be called Emmanuel, which is what? God with us. There's so much more we could say, and I'm running out of time, and I'm trying to hurry. Um, the, the Christ the Messiah, same word, Christos in Greek, Mashiach in Hebrew means the same thing. Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one that's going to come to save the world. 
He comes twice, the first time to die on the cross to save us from our sins and take our punishment. He comes a second time to re reward righteousness, punish all ungodliness, and to reign as king. Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. It wasn't Mary Christ, jo Joseph Christ, and little Jesus Christ, and the other little Christs running around. His name, if you want to get technical, is Yeshua ben Yosef, Jesus, son of Joseph. Wait, it wasn't really his father. I know, but if in that culture, that's what they would have called him. Or you call somebody by where they're from. Jesus of Nazareth, right? He's really Jesus of Bethlehem. Ooh, David, Bethlehem, Messiah. But in any case, Peter totally gets it right. We're going to have to save for next time the response of Jesus and where Peter got it. And it was not from here. It wasn't from observing the miracles. I've reasoned it out. You're the Messiah, the Son of God. We're going to find out wasn't from flesh and blood. That means both nobody told you this, another person, but also your flesh and blood. It didn't even come from you, Peter. It came from God. It was a revelation. We'll talk about it next time. That'll make you come back and we'll have different treats. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time. We can be in your word. We love you so much, God. You sent your son. He was willing. He came and lived the perfect life we were supposed to live, sinless, compassionate, loving, and then he died the horrible death I was supposed to live. We were suppo supposed to die, I mean, in order to pay for our sins. He took our punishment. We owe you. We owe him everything. We confess, all of us, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. We are putting all our eggs in that basket, God. We are all in for the gospel. We're betting our very lives and our eternities on that fact because we are certain. We know. And so we don't need a miracle or a sign, God. We will be careful about false teachers. Make us aware of the signs of the times, God, that are happening around us and that the time may be very short. So make us bold witnesses for your kingdom when you present us those opportunities. Thank you for these truths. We love you, Father. We love your son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Bless these truths. May they change the way we live, God. Thank you for this time. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray all these things. Amen. See you next time. Make sure you say hello to someone in this room that you don't know, especially someone that's new. And there's two people that are fairly new. Anyway, the rest of you, God bless you. Thanks for being here. See you next time.